1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week we're going to be discussing Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy. Now it's a couple months after the storm, uh, but the storm is extremely relevant still, both because unfortunately many are still suffering damages from the storm, uh, but also because really our entire economy is still threatened by a movement that has been exploiting Superstorm Sandy, as a reason to, in effect, shut down industrial civilization via the progressive outlawing of fossil fuels, which are the lifeblood of, fo- of uh, industrial civilization. And the idea is that it was was really encapsulated in uh, Mayor Bloomberg's statement, it's global warming, stupid, which meant, obviously, If we continue to burn fossil fuels, we are going to be devastated by storms. Now, I found this offensive, uh, this statement offensive on many, many, many counts. Uh, But rather than just ranting about it myself, we have an expert today who has made a really, really in-depth study of Sandy and has really shown in a series of articles for Master Resource. Uh, which start on Friday, January 31st, which is the day that I'm recording this intro, and then are going to continue next week as you hear the show. And he has really investigated um, in a fascinating way all the different details of what actually led to the disaster. Now, of course, there was a bad storm, for sure. And he, like... I think any sane person does not blame it on a you know average change in global temperature, um, which doesn't make any sense. Which wouldn't make any sense to do. Um, but what he does do is blame the amount of damage on the amount of mistakes by politicians, including very very bad long-standing policies. So this is a this is a really really important issue, uh, and. I've already done the interview. It's a really, really great interview. So we're going to learn all about Superstorm Sandy, all about what really caused most of the damage, how we can prevent similar damage in the future, uh, and actually um, one of the coolest stories you'll ever hear about his time on an oil rig. So stick around, and we'll see you on the other side. Hour Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Right, Joining us is Senior Policy Advisor at CFACT, Paul Driesen. Paul, welcome to Power Hour.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: All right. Now, you've been doing some really interesting work lately on Hurricane Sandy, which is still very much with us, both because there are still people recovering from the damages, and it is still being used as a leading uh, pretext to destroy our leading energy sources and you had a really interesting article on townhall.com on this topic last month and you have an upcoming piece uh, we're recording on monday january 28th you have a piece coming up on thursday at master resource right
0: that's correct the piece is good be several times larger and longer than the piece that was on Town Hall and various other websites. goes into much more detail about the background behind Sandy, reports that were issued over the many years to New York uh, public officials and largely ignored the development activities that have taken place in New York that really render storms like Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy much more devastating and the responses as the hurricane bore down on the city uh, some of the warnings that were issued that were more confusing and unhelpful than anything that might people aware of how bad the storm was going to be and how it was going to impact them so that's what this other paper covers in much more detail.
1: Yeah, and we're we're going to drill down um, into into multiple aspects of those. Just to, to remind the readers, for anyone who needs reminding, what the popular portrayal of this is is that it's uh, essentially a it's essentially a man made problem, man made not in terms of politics or bad choices, but only the choice to use fossil fuels. And a recent letter I got in my email from uh, Bill McKibben. Says uh, this is this is an open letter, I guess. Just a few months ago, we witnessed New York and New Jersey swallowed up by our still rising oceans. So that's that is the uh, image, and then there's of course the immortal quote by Bloomberg of "It's global warming, stupid." Now, just setting that on the table, I wanna I wanna step back and and and. Ask this because I think your article um, addresses this from a very, from the right perspective, which is assuming we didn't hear all of this stuff about how the change in the global mean temperature anomaly caused this storm. Like, leaving aside that pseudoscience, if we were just trying to understand what caused this in terms of real types of causes, real, you know, mistakes that we made, real things that we could do better, where where do we start? What are the things to look at when you have a storm, that does a lot of damage, and you want to do better in the future?
0: Okay, let's step back just for a second and say a couple of things. One, global temperatures have not been rising for 16 years now, and sea levels haven't been rising any faster than they were 100 years ago. Uh, sea levels have risen 400 feet since the end of the last ice age. So that's all the context I think we need, first of all. Secondly, New York is not static. New York City and the whole coastal community have been under some significant development for many, many decades and centuries. Uh, Long Island is twice as wide as it used to be. Manhattan is much wider than it used to be. It's because of landfills and expanding into the oceans. It's all very low-lying. It's barely above sea level. Some places only a few feet above sea level. And you're making the water channels much narrower. So when you get a hurricane like Sandy coming in, and especially this one which was combined with a Northeaster, and it came, it hit New York basically several times over a couple of days uh, at high tide, with the full moon, so you had a five-foot, five-and-a-half-foot increase on top of the storm surge. You had the tides that brought the seas up another five feet or so. And then for the coastal communities, you had waves that were whipped up by these 70 and 80 mile an hour winds that were pounding the area. So you have a lot of water coming in at high tide with a lot of ferocity going up channels of uh, river channels and other waterways that have been narrowed down progressively over the centuries trying to carry far more water. That means a narrow passageway means the water is going to surge up much higher when it hits. So New York's been warned about this many, many times in all kinds of reports, but it's not something the city fathers want to talk about. It's much easier to blame it on global warming or climate change or weird weather, weather on steroids, which is what they were doing. But the other thing you have to keep in mind with New York is that, Manhattan has been pounded many times over the years and the centuries by major storms. There was a massive one in 1693. There was another one, Category 3, they estimate, maybe higher, 1821. There was one that hit in 1938 called the Long Island Express that came roaring in and just carved new channels into the uh, Long Island area. It wiped out an island... uh, there was a 1993 storm similar to that that wiped out Hog Island. And the point is, Sandy was not unprecedented. And if it had come in with the force of the 1821 hurricane, we would have had hundreds and hundreds more people dead, a lot more property damage. So the question isn't so much how can you prevent another sandy because it's going to come at some point. It's how can you re- minimize the impact on the people and property that are in that area.
1: Well, let's. you mentioned how much more damaging a storm, this exact storm, would have been in the past. Could you elaborate on the reasons why we're so much safer from any given hurricane now than we were 100, 200 years ago?
0: Sure. main thing is we generally are Given much more advanced notice, and we have much stronger buildings. Um We have ways to get out if we're in the really low-lying areas, assuming we get adequate warning and are told this is a big one coming in and you need to get out of your low-lying homes. Uh, There was a hurricane in 1785, I think it was, up in Halifax, Nova Scotia area, Newfoundland area, that killed 4,000 people. That was a third of the population at the time. Uh, These monsters coming in, and the key thing is... Don't build so many homes right along the shore, and if you're going to build there, get out of there in time. Uh, In the areas of New York, they had a lot of generators, backup power generation equipment, but it was put in the basements of areas that were going to be under 10 feet of water. Uh, that's not a smart thing to do so there's a lot of things that can be done Uh, a lot of things that we are much better at doing now uh, loading in supplies and water, it's a matter of actually doing the things that should be done Uh, possibly putting uh, doors on the tunnels in and out of Manhattan so that they don't get flooded and all the power lines don't get flooded there's a lot of those things that can and should be done we're not doing all of them, that's the problem So we've got the technology to warn people, to prepare in advance, to get people out of there, to move to higher ground, whether that just means going up higher in a skyscraper and hope that the windows hold up, uh, because that's a problem in these high situations. But uh, we've got the wherewithal, especially the... Uh, knowledge three, four days in advance, maybe even more, that a monster hurricane is coming in, we can be prepared. We just need to do it.
1: You mentioned the issue of where building takes place, and I think it's a huge issue just around the country. Uh, what are the what are the political incentives that incentivize people to live in areas where they might suffer large amounts of financial damage or even uh, personal risk? Well,
0: the. Th- if you if you're looking at uh the southern southeastern areas nor, uh, along virginia and uh, north carolina for example uh everybody wants to be near the oceans most of our population these days is within 50 miles of the coastline so there's that there's flood insurance that's all backed up by federal dollars you get a real reduced f- rate there's uh Federal sub- federally subsidized rebuilding money. There's a lot of those sorts of things. But when you get up into the New York area, you've got a fantastic harbor. It's generally very well protected. It's a financial area for the whole United States. They estimate that 25% of our gross domestic product moves some way or another through the financial district of New York City. You've got most compact uh, area in terms of population density in the United States anyway, maybe in most of the world, uh, there's a huge infrastructure there. It's our communications hub, it's our media hub, it's our transportation hub. So many things happen. Uh, so that on top of the jobs that are available, on top of the flood insurance and things that keep people rebuilding instead of just moving away. Uh, There are a lot of reasons New York has to stay New York, and it has to be developed, and the people have to be there. We just need to do a better job of preparing in the face of these hurricanes and other monster storms that do come in from time to time. Every 30, 40, to 70 years, one of these big boys hits New York. Uh, It's happened every century, and it will continue to happen.
1: It it seems like in one sense for for a lot of places. You know, if, if, I mean, if if let's take where I live in Southern California. I mean, in general, when you move toward the coast, there are certain coastal risks that don't occur when you're not on the coast. Of course, there are other risks when you're not on the coast. But in any case, it seems perfectly normal and healthy to me that over time as a society becomes wealthier the people will be able and willing to assume more risk to live in a nicer place. The problem seems to be with the flood insurance where they are not actually assuming that risk and others are assuming that risk and therefore you get an irrational build up of people living on the coast when they're not able or willing to pay for it. I'm curious what you think of that.
0: Well and that's actually true. Uh, no doubt about it. Yeah, and we do subsidize a lot of building of very expensive homes now right along our coastlines, right along uh, Long Island, for example, and the Rockaways. You have built now 500,000, million and a half domes right almost on the beach uh, with the knowledge that if they get wrecked, the feds will come in and help subsidize rebuilding. Um, you've got a lot of other areas right along there that are. Uh, not just built up, but each time there's a storm that wipes out the the older homes, you come in and build better homes the next time. Uh, Another area on Rockaways was put on some land that was raised by feet, so that helped protect those new homes and shield them from the the storm surges, but it forced a lot of the storm surge to go around that raised area and hit some of the lower-lying areas even harder. So, there's a lot of that that's going on, but when you look at it another way, we're also subsidizing the reconstruction in Tornado Alley. There's thousands, millions of homes in areas that are buffeted by tornadoes in the United States. What, what's Tornado Alley? Well, Tornado Alley is our central United States, Kansas, Nebraska a little bit, Um parts of Texas, Oklahoma, where the tornadoes come in this past year was a real mild one. We all had almost no tornadoes, but that's unusual. Usually, the United States gets more tornadoes than all the rest of the world put together, and that's just because we have the cold Arctic air coming down from up in Alaska and northern Canada, combining with the warm moist air up from the gulf and it creates some monster storms and that gives rise to an awful lot of hurricane of tornado activity so we're subsidizing those guys in a lot of ways as well and either we do that or nobody lives in a lot of these good areas where people want to live and where there's a lot of good transportation and commerce reasons for living and good agricultural or mining or forestry regions, reasons for being there. So I think there's some legitimacy to having some federal support for this, but part of it comes down to again, how do you build your homes, just where exactly do you put them and what do you issue in terms of storm warnings, and how should people respond to those warnings in advance to save lives and reduce property damage?
1: I don't know why it would be. I mean, if they're truly productive areas and they have all of these benefits, presumably that you know certain people, at least who are being productive there, could afford insurance, or someone would be willing to insure them. And if and if it's so expensive, and if the net of living there is ultimately negative economically i don't see why you would want them to be subsidized to live there
0: yeah you make a good case for that uh and yet we do the same thing for earthquake country out in California. Yeah. Um, it's across the board. It's not one area of the country that is pretty much exempt from the kinds of tragedies that we're seeing here. There are different kinds of tragedies in different parts of the country. And even when it comes to earthquakes, I think the most devastating earthquake ever to hit North America, but thankfully it came before there was a whole lot of stuff here. It was back in the 1800s somewhere. It was in Missouri, and it was a huge earthquake. Uh, so there are other parts of the country that don't get them very often, but if that same earthquake from mid-1800s struck today around St. Louis, you'd have a, a mess there. So I think what we're looking at is really a somewhat rational approach to helping the whole country, help the rest of the country, uh when a natural disasters strike, and we, each part of the country faces its own kinds of natural disasters, and yet maybe it's time to re-examine the extent of the help that we're going to give, especially where people come in and they build million, two million dollar mansions right along the oceanfront. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you're going to build them to withstand a hurricane. With category two or three st- uh, size and winds and storm surges, and there's somewhat a movement in that direction. But uh, the question is, should the whole country subsidize that kind of building for only the really richest families in the country who can afford to build a $2 million home in the first place?
1: Well, this is interesting because I think uh, I, I think that, that a lot of the points you're making are... I think logically almost lead to the idea that that there shouldn't be these subsidies because let's take the term natural disaster. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of things that would be natural disasters so-called 100 years ago that aren't disastrous now because of technology and because of human intelligence, whether it's that you build a sturdier home or that you have a warning, or that you have the knowledge, as you were mentioning, to know where to build and knowing the safety risks of different places. And it seems like with what what McKibben is saying with swallowing up New York, there's almost this primitive religion type mentality of we're just passive and then the earth just inflicts weather on us and that's why we pray to the rain gods and don't hope and his substitute for the rain gods is just destroying all the energy producers and then yeah, we'll and he's,
0: t- he's creating a, a whole new passivity with the idea yes. that we are causing this weather uh, and But yet somehow we can control the weather, but we can't control some of the things that we've really been doing that have caused the impact that Sandy wrought on New York and New Jersey. Uh, it had nothing to do with human contributions of CO2, but it had a lot to do with a lot of political decisions to put and not just political, but practical and other decisions to put homes where they were, to put high rises where they were, to put generators in the basement instead of up on the second or third floor where they'd be immune from these storm surges. They don't happen very often, but when they do, they have a huge impact. We've seen these in the past. We've read about them. They are in all kinds of reports and too many of our politicians have chosen to ignore the reports because Nobody wants to not build and expand and have all these uh, wonderful uh, arrangements right down along the the oceans and the rivers. that's beautiful country, and everybody loves it and When it's New York, as I said, this is a financial hub, but it, the, the politicians and the developers a lot of the other folks that are behind the construction that goes in just don't want to. Pay attention to these fairly negative-sounding reports, and the people out there that have to live in the face of the storms often just aren't aware. They should become more aware and read these reports and be better prepared and build their homes better, sock in water, have their own portable generators, put them someplace where they're not going to be submerged in the water. There's a lot of things that can be done. It's just a matter of... Everybody being much more aware and demanding some accountability and responsibility on the part of our politicians who are making decisions that really put us in harm's way if we're not aware of what's going on ourselves.
1: The, the word – one of the words you said that struck me was was passive, that McKibben had a very passive view and that that's destructive. And I, I really like the distinction of passive versus active because what you're pointing out in your town hall article and I'm anticipating in the master resource piece is all of the ways in which – well, the ways in which human beings have already acted to deal with this kind of thing but but then looking actively to what we can do. And that's that's so much of a healthier attitude than just saying – Oh, the weather – either the weather just just messed us up and what are we going to do or we messed up the weather, which messed us up. So we only have one active role, which is to mess up the weather and other than that, we can't we can't do anything. So I wish I – mean, I hope that people take heed and I think in fact the, the response to Katrina uh, – I mean media response in a sense was much healthier in that at least whatever all their mistakes were, they at least looked for human mistakes – instead of just blaming human energy
0: consumption. Right. And bear in mind, the thing that has gotten us as far as we have economically, socially, uh, for longevity, for our standards of living, has been hydrocarbon energy. And to, to vilify it, to scapegoat it for disasters that have occurred repeatedly over the centuries. You just take a look, go on Wikipedia, and key in uh, hurricanes and other storms for New York City or for Canada's maritime provinces. You'll be shocked at how many of these storms have pounded the heck out of those areas in the past, century after century. So Kibben, I think, is really deluding himself and trying to delude the rest of us into thinking that we have screwed up the weather and that's why we're being pounded more than ever in the past, which is simply not the case. But it also leaves us thinking, well, there's nothing we can do about this, but there is a lot we can do about it, again, in terms of how we build, where we build, how we prepare for these storms, how we uh, respond immediately after them. And politicians, I think, messed up Mr. Bloomberg in particular with the storm warnings that he gave and with a lot of his other decisions leading up to and in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. And he needs to be held accountable for some of that uh, rather than turning to McKibben and these other folks and trying to blame climate change for his own screw-ups or not just his but a lot of other people in the New York area.
1: And I think some of your other work, um, in terms of in your book, eco tyranny, and um, that's a, I got the title right, correct? Eco imperialism. Eco. I'm sorry. Eco, there's another book, eco tyranny, which both of which right. I've read recently. Um, eco imperialism. I apologize. Um, where you talk about the consequences of of these so-called green policies on you know the poorest people in the world, and and if we look at this climate fund, where the West is supposed to transfer uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, to poor countries. The message we're sending is essentially there's nothing you can do and there's no responsibility you have for dealing with the weather, which is a fundamental aspect of human life. It's all our fault and you just sit there and we'll give you some money. And and That's just the most destructive attitude I can imagine for both sides because we're getting money stolen and other people are, are told to Um, exist in pre-modern conditions without hydrocarbons.
0: That's exactly right. What we're saying is we developed countries, uh, we rich developed countries, caused this weather problem that everybody's facing today, and therefore we need to send the poor countries boatloads of money in compensation and mitigation, try to stop our own development any further so that we can stop climate change which is never going to, will never stop, it never has stopped Uh, it's a constant throughout history, but it's also telling these poor countries now don't make our mistakes, don't use hydrocarbons, stay poor because if you try to develop using hydrocarbons or nuclear energy or hydroelectric uh, you're going to further mess up the world. And so we're basically saying, we're happy to send you some money, but don't expect us to cut back our living standards too much, but we don't want you guys in Africa and Southeast Asia and other places to develop too much because that would hurt the earth and its habitats and its climate, and we can't allow that. So it is very much eco-imperialism founded on completely bogus scientific theory about climate change uh, as being something humans have caused and humans can somehow mitigate or stop or direct by pushing a carbon dioxide button, but it's also eco imperialism in the sense of telling poor the poorest, most malnourished people on the planet that they really don't have much hope for the future either, and that's just wrong.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's really horrifying and but they they are in some ways equal opportunity destroyers, and that leads us to the the Canadian oil sands and Keystone XL because they are calling for, depending on who you ask eighty to ninety five percent cuts in our uh carbon energy usage um, which would destroy our economy and one uh one major point of contention that McKibben among others call a carbon bomb is the Keystone XL pipeline so tell us a- about the uh work you've been doing with that issue recently?
0: Well, I was up there to see the the oil sands or tar sands, whichever you want to call them, in Alberta. It's an amazingly well-run operation. It's taking tarry substances out of the earth that for centuries have leaked into Canadian rivers and turning them into energy to run Canada and the United States. Essentially, where the environmentalists go wrong is in a couple of places. One, they're assuming that this is some sort of a carbon bomb that's only coming from, from Canada. In reality, what this will do what this Keystone Pipeline and Canadian Oil Sands will do is replace the oil that we are currently getting from Tunisia, from Venezuela, from other countries all over the planet. In particular, uh, Hugo Chavez's Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and a lot from Mexico. So it will come down the pipeline and come into our uh, system, uh, be refined here and used here, and we won't have to import from these other places, which can then ship their oil someplace else. But the notion of somehow we can eliminate our use of oil and gas in this here and now is completely illusory. What will we replace it with? They don't like nuclear power. They don't like hydrocarbons. I mean, hydroelectric. Um, They say they like wind and solar, but the impact on birds and bats from wind turbines, the impact on lands and raw materials use from building massive wind turbine and solar arrays and then having to back them up with fossil fuel energy anyway because wind and solar only works 20% of the time, uh, you're ending up with far more ecological harm impacts than you do if you just build the gas-fired or coal-fired power plants to begin with or the nuclear plants. So, they are coming in with all kinds of arguments that simply don't hold water in terms of the uh, why the oil sands and Keystone are bad. Uh, And then they're trying to offer some illusory energy system that simply doesn't exist and cannot exist. Maybe in 100 years, 200 years, when we really do exhaust all the new oil and gas resources that we're discovering through the oil sands and hydraulic fracturing and uh, 3D and 4D seismic and high-definition seismic, finding all these deposits around the world that will get us through another 100 or 200 years. That's an awful lot of time for us to come up with all kinds of new technologies to replace what we're using today. And maybe down the road, we will have something that has far less ecological impacts than what we're talking about now. But in the meantime, unless we're really willing to sacrifice our living standards, our communities, our children's lives, and uh, any hope of economic recovery and employment recovery in this country, we've got to have the hydrocarbons. Um, McKibben is just living on some alter- alternative planet because what we have at our at, literally beneath our feet is what we need today for us to exist.
1: Yeah, I think that you can divide the uh, climate change catastrophists into two categories. Those who adamantly support nuclear and hydro, which is a, a tiny fraction of them, and those who adamantly or even at all uh, oppose them. And the former category, uh, I think they have very grave misunderstandings of the nature of climate and many things like that, but at least they are identifying what would be the most logical first step um, in addressing that problem if there were a problem like that. But the second category is just obviously anti-energy because you can't oppose nuclear and hydro when you say that there's a catastrophe and these are the only known scalable uh, cheap plentiful reliable sources of energy and, and nuclear is the only one that's truly scalable be- between those two it's just it's just a complete farce and and really the fact it's one thing that that they've been able to get away with a lot of pseudoscience but just that obvious hypocrisy and its implication that they don't care about energy at all and in fact that they have hostility toward any sort of energy and development that the the fact that that's not just public knowledge that this is a whole enormous group of hypocrites that are obviously after the destruction of energy I think is a media crime
0: I agree and there's two other aspects of this that don't get addressed very often. Number one is a lot of these folks, Prince Philip, even Jacques Cousteau, Eric Pianca at the University of Texas, they advocate the elimination of about 90% of the human population. I assume they want to be in the 10% that's left. But we uh, I'm not ready to give up my stake here on planet Earth or my kids. And I think most of us, believe that human beings are as much a part of the ecology and the planet as any wildlife that you might find out there. Uh, we are not just destroyers or polluters or users, we are creators and protectors of the planet and we are getting better and better at that and we are better protectors and better innovators and creators the more energy we have and the more we can apply our God-given intellect and creative talents to solving the problems we face, even if they create some new problems that the next generation has to solve. Uh, The other part of the problem here is that the environmentalists, with few exceptions, completely turn their eyes away from the destructiveness of some of the energy sources they advocate. I mentioned the impacts of wind turbines, for example. This is something they want to completely sweep under the rug. They don't want to talk about the fact that even with thousands, tens of thousands of wind turbines here in the United States already, you're still getting 80, 90% of that energy of the electricity that is somehow attributed to wind turbines. The vast majority of it is still coming from fossil fuels. And secondly, the impact of those wind turbines on wildlife and lands and habitats is enormous. The latest estimates based on actual bird and bat death uh, mortality counts in Germany and Spain is that looking at the number of wind turbines here in the U.S., which is about 40,000, Those wind turbines are annually killing between 13 million and 39 million birds and bats every year. These are not just sparrows or uh, morning doves and things like that. These are bald and golden eagles. They are whooping cranes. They are entire flocks of geese at times that blunder through a wind turbine facility. They are hawks and falcons, some of our most important species, and and basically two times as many uh, bats as birds are being killed by these wind turbines. That is an ecological crime that is being completely ignored by our federal government, by members of Congress, and by the environmentalists.
1: Well, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy there. But if we stipulated that there was a global climate catastrophe and there was no nuclear power, or hydropower, and wind power actually produced reliable power, I would for sure say, okay, if this is the only way of getting power, then you know that I'm willing to prioritize. We need to prioritize ourselves over the birds. I think it's that they, when the time comes, if this ever actually became practical, they would say, oh, well, we can't do it because it kills birds. There's always a pretext for why an energy source should be essentially uh, illegal. And it's just a matter of of they don't do that until it becomes practical. It's just like in, in the late 1980s when there was this um, false idea that fusion, the nuclear fusion was possible. And Ehrlich and a couple of other people said things to the effect of, we can't do this, even though it's super cheap, super clean, super abundant because we would be like an idiot child with a machine gun. We would we would use so much energy we'd engage in so much development. And I think that really captures the opposition. It's not the damage that that comes from the production of the energy ultimately. It's in their view the damage that comes from the consumption of the energy which is to f- further human life through development.
0: That's absolutely right. Uh but Part of what drives all of this is what you were just talking about at the outset there, the assumption that we are causing dangerous man-made global warming and climate change and weather disruption, the assumption that hydrocarbons are bad, the assumption that nuclear power is bad, the assumption that wind power can somehow solve all these problems if you assume away all the bird and bat deaths. So it's one assumption piled on another, it's, which ultimately just comes down to pure lunacy insanity, and, and it's time for us to get some of these crazy emotional ideas out of there and start applying our human intellect, which is what got us where we are today for good or bad. But I think mostly good. for good. good. And <laughs> we've just got to uh, stop having these emotional knee-jerk reaction to things, including offshore oil and gas. I mean, that we've had a couple of accidents. They are going to continue just like airplane and car accidents happen from time to time because technology fails or human beings fail. But overall, offshore oil and gas has been a godsend to... The energy picture that has driven us forward just in a couple hundred years, you look at the improved living standards, the much longer life sp- lifespans that we are enjoying, and the much healthier lifestyles that we have today than we had in the past. Uh, it's all part and parcel of something that has made human civilization what it is today, and yet it constantly gets ripped apart by self-styled environmentalists.
1: And, and I think that's a good segue um, to the final topic I wanted to raise, and this has to do with the relationship between man and nature. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because often there's a there's a okay there's the natural, and then there's the man-made. But I think, imagine another species was looking at our planet. They wouldn't say, oh, these human beings are somehow alien to everything else. They would say, oh, that's the most successful species. That's, you know, as Steve Jobs liked to use this expression, the crown of creation, so to speak, even though I personally don't believe in creation in that way. But it's, we are part of nature, and I think we shouldn't have at all guilt about that and guilt uh, about our success. and, and part, But part of that is is enjoying other parts of nature. And one thing you brought up to me the last time we talked was your experiences um, seeing how the presence of oil rigs had this fascinating and even beautiful effect on other parts of nature. So uh, tell us about that.
0: What you're talking about is the marine life that's associated with these offshore oil and gas production platforms. When you put one out there, you're setting down a subsea structure that supports what you see above the surface, a little factory, if you would, sitting on a bunch of stilts, an erector set that's under the waves, going all the way down to the seafloor to hold the production equipment, the drilling equipment, uh, the processing facilities, up above the waves and where the people that work the platform actually live. Well, what you're doing is similar to what happens when a ship sinks, whether it was at truck lagoon after the American attack on the Japanese forces there, or it's a ship that you deliberately sink, uh, or it's what's happened as the seas rose after the last ice age coming up 400 feet and putting a whole bunch of mountains largely underwater creating these islands, and along the shores of the islands you've got coral reef structures. Well, the same thing is happening when you put an oil rig out there. It's a fascinating journey below the waves to see how nature actually operates, how these little creatures, planktons and larvae and eggs that are floating all the time in the ocean suddenly find a hard surface to lay down uh, their life, their future life, and, and start creating an ecosystem. You have thousands and thousands of shellfish that adhere to the platform legs, mussels and clams and so forth. Then you get the starfish coming in and living on them. You get the sea anemones. You get the fish that come along to hide out there, to forage among the uh, seashells and so forth that are there. There's life that falls to the bottom of the platform and lands on the seafloor below there and the fish go down there and forage. Uh, It's like going to another planet when I go underwater there. I love scuba diving, always have. Uh, You're taken to a totally different planet, Uh, something so eerie and beautiful, whether it's nighttime diving, which is totally different from what you see in the day, or it's the daytime and you find mussels that are nine inches long, starfish that are three feet across off the California platforms. You find millions of fish and shellfish off the coast of Louisiana and Texas that never existed there before the oil rigs arrived because there was no habitat for them. The seafloor there because of Mississippi is just mud. So all of a sudden you've created a Caribbean reef environment for all the fish and shellfish and anemones and corals and sponges that are sending their larvae to float on the currents in hopes of finding a new place to live. So you have a, a new ecosystem that human beings have created, and people go there to fish, to scuba dive, to take pictures, just enjoy what nature can bring to us.
1: Yeah, it's. It, I mean, I. It's very inspiring to, I mean, it sounds like a really fun vacation to just go, you know, scuba dive down there uh, and look at all that stuff. And it it reminds me of other stories I heard uh, when I would read the back issues of uh, Petter Beckman's access to energy. And he would once in a while talk about how some group of so-called environmentalists was complaining about um, a nuclear power plant heating up some local water. And yet the fish population loved that. And he pointed out that in nature, for many species where they are, there's a shortage of warmth. And all things being equal, they would want more warmth. And yet there's this um like sort of environmental sin perspective on human beings, or natural sin, where anything we do is inherently destructive to quote unquote nature. And I think a, a view of nature without human beings is an anti Human uh, philosophy, and I think we need a natural philosophy that incorporates and celebrates human beings.
0: I agree, and that's what CFACT Committee for Constructive Tomorrow is all about. We believe in a people-centered environmental ethic. You protect the planet for and against people. You protect uh, people for and against nature. Uh, it's we have a very important place here. Uh, nature is it has no respect for or against life. It just takes place. And you get the weather, you get the violent earthquakes, you get forest fires from time to time, you get all kinds of impacts. And human beings need to learn to coexist with those things, cause the fewest environmental impacts. But we also have a responsibility to one another to help improve one another's lives. And that means utilizing the tremendous resource bounties that God has given us on our planet and exercise them responsibly utilize them responsibly I should say Uh, use them sustainably which is a loaded term in itself we can cover that in another program but it also means just doing everything with some some element of care and foresight minimizing our ecological impact, our resource use being uh, efficient, uh, conserving, recycling, and so forth, uh, but utilizing those resources for our benefit. So I fully agree with you and what happens in uh with the warm water discharges in a into a lake or river is you do warm up a little bit of the water there and you end up with much higher algae amounts there phytoplankton and zooplankton that creates a food source for a lot of other fish and they there are a lot of those fish species as you said that do like the warmer waters so may change things a little bit, change the mix of species, bring in some new species, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a little bit different. It's just no different from when Mount St. Helens explodes or Santorini exploded many years back. Um, nature changes nature. Uh, the Ice Ages brought massive sheets of ice down all the way a third of our continent, Half of our continent really changed North America for millennia to follow, Um, and it is the way of the world. So we have to adapt to what nature brings and what we are doing And nature. We are benefactors to nature as well as sometimes culprits in doing things in a poor way.
1: All right. Well, yeah, you raised a lot of interesting issues. It'll be fun to, to tackle on future programs in terms of philosophically defining exactly how we think about the relationship between the human and the non-human or man and, and the rest of nature. But we're out of time and it's been a great interview. Paul, where can uh, readers or listeners, I should say, find out more about you, read more of your stuff and, or find more out about CFACT?
0: Well, one of the best places is go to cfact.org, cfact.org. Find a lot of my material there. A lot of my articles are published on townhall.com. And my own website is eco-imperialism.com. Thanks for having me on. It's been a a wonderful experience to chat with you. You bring up some amazing issues, and I hope people will give a lot of thought to all of this.
1: All right, Paul, great to have you as well, and we'll be in touch. Okay, take care. Thanks again to Paul Drizen for being on the show. I think from from different angles, the same issue kept coming up over and over, which is what is the relationship between man and the rest of nature? And I emphasize the rest of nature because there's a tendency to view man as apart from nature, as and and Really, nothing is apart from nature. Nature encompasses everything, and man is a part of it, and he is our part of it, and we rightly care about him uh, primarily, care about him, care about man, care about ourselves uh, above all. And yet there's a view that that man should be subordinate to the rest of nature, that that, uh, man's superiority over the other species is something to feel guilty about, and something that is going to bring some sort of divine or mother natural retribution. Uh, and you know, that's that's the view held by the modern environmentalist movement. And one aspect of that view is that they view they have this a, a very strange view of climate, which is that climate is naturally favorable toward us if we don't really change anything in nature. But then if we change things in nature, then the climate is going to come back to bite us. Whereas all of history shows us the exact opposite, that climate by its nature can be extremely hostile to human life, It's an extremely, you no, know, the world is an extremely dangerous place to live for the non-industrialized human being. And yet with energy and industry and technology and progress, the climate becomes less and less of a variable in our lives. Uh, I think I've cited before the work of uh, Dr. Inder Goklani, whom we'll try to get on the show at some point, and he's, he's one of the people who's compiled the, the data about how uh, climate-related deaths, which I like to call climate danger, have fallen 98% over the last 80 years, which is just a testament to the fact that what really matters in terms of man's relationship with nature what really matters positively is technology. So whatever byproducts any given technology has, even if you think they do affect climate, and even if you could prove that it was somehow net negative, obviously the overall is still incredibly positive. And if there was any serious negative we would always want a technological solution. But that requires that we have a pro-man, pro-technology philosophy. Because if we have a pro-man, pro-technology philosophy, we will really treasure all the benefits that technology brings us. And we will never look at our best technologies and, and scream about them or hold rallies against them. If you know, if we find a problem, we solve the problem, but we solve it with better technology. Whereas the modern environmentalist movement, their solution to everything, whether it's an alleged problem with DDT or an alleged problem with fossil fuels, is to shut down the whole enterprise, to shut down all forms of affordable, reliable energy, or to attack any form of enhanced chemicals that man creates. And in both cases, the uh, the result is mass suffering, and at least in the, uh, in the case of DDT, mass death. And certainly if they get their way on fossil fuels, mass death. But I should say, uh, they won't. So that's The wrong view of the relationship between man and nature leads to just leads to it's really at the root of the entire environmentalist attack on industrial civilization. Um, But the real view is, you know, viewing man as a part of nature, and really the greatest part of nature. It's not to be anti-the rest of nature at all. It's to be on the premise of enjoying the rest of nature maximizing our well-being in the same way that you enjoy your garden but if some poisonous plant comes into your garden or you know a wild animal is running around your garden you don't just you don't just stop and do nothing you recognize your garden has to be tended and so we want to we want to improve the planet for maximum human benefit and if we recognize the that technology is really what matters and that mother nature is neither out to get us or out to benefit us but merely provides a backdrop for doing amazing things with technology then that's you know that's what made po- that's the philosophy that made possible the industrial revolution and that's that's the CIP philosophy that's the philosophy that'll make possible the next industrial revolution so i hope you enjoyed the show definitely check out uh, Paul's article at masterresource.org. And as always, please send questions, comments to alex at industrialprogress.net. Love mail, hate mail, via email, smoke signals, whatever you want. Next week, we'll be back. Another great topic, another great guest. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power
0: Hour. Power Hour. Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Energy, Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.